You're about to enter the Double Dragon Podcast with Shane Greenwood, owner of Double Dragon Gym in the Sutherland Shire, Trent Lawrence, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Black Belt, and active pro Muay Thai fighter, Hugh O'Donnell. Are you ready? Fight! Fight! Alright, and welcome back to Enter the Double Dragon Podcast, episode 62, coming at you. It's me, your boy, Shane Greenwood. Here with me is Trenton Lawrence. Hello. And Hugh O'Donnell. Hey. In the lovely Double Dragon gym on a Thursday night after sparring, rolling, boxing, all the nine yards from there. Everyone's tired. I've got a bit of a throat infection. It's fucking lovely. I'm not. But how are you guys feeling? Um, tired and sweaty. Yeah. <laughs> I feel great, but sweaty. Yeah, that's, what, that's just a constant. That's how I usually am. Definitely sweaty. All right, so we're just going to change up the format a little bit, or actually have a format. Yeah, okay. we're going to need to format. <laughs> it's just to kind of clean things up a little bit from here and like, you know, provide timestamps and whatnot. So we're going to divide this into three segments. So the first segment is um, going to be doing like a little bit like, uh, you know, just interesting news. Um... A bit of like, you know, a bit of ranting, I think, this time around. If I have a rant saved up, this is a segment that will go in. <laughs> the second portion will be um, in, until our breakdown. Um, this week, it will be all focused really on um, one's uh, previous card over the weekend, Enter the Dragon, from there with the uh, featherweight kickboxing tournament and a few other good, like, good MMA fights as well. And then the last segment from there is just going to be like... Um, it's going to be more so like strength and conditioning tips for like combat sports. So my background for me, I've been doing strength and conditioning for this gym for about 10 years. Um, I've learned off like um, people, people like, well, my original mentor was Shannon Green, who runs Warrior, Warrior Performance from there, really knowledgeable guy in strength conditioning. Uh, and then basically just spending my knowledge, like learning of people like Charles Poliquin, which are probably a few of you will go, what the fuck, Charles Poliquin? You know, that <laughs> that lunatic from there. Um, but he did have a lot of good stuff to learn from. Um, also, you know, learned from Phil, uh, like did a seminar with Phil Daru and I follow a lot of his stuff. If you don't know who Phil Daru is, he's the the main strength and conditioning guy for ATT. So training people like Joanna Janjacek, Junior Jasanas, and like, you know, Dustin Portier. And also like Joel Jameson as well, who's been like, you know, trainer of Demetrius Johnson at AMC. So like, you know, like, and it's like a lot of stuff that I use with the fighters here. And like, you know, Hugh's pretty fit, yeah? I'm pretty jacked. He's all right. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the guys, like, we, I never really, like, you know, once we get into, like, proper fights from there, we never really have an issue with gas tank in that one. So, like, yeah, so hopefully I can impart a bit of knowledge if, like, you're looking at a little bit of structure or, like, some tips that kind of help you, like, just do the right things, like, or, like, things that make sense and, like, you know, not, and, like, would mostly fight us is overdoing it a lot of times and just doing, like, you know, the stuff that you need to do from there, like, hopefully it just helps you out. All right, but let's start with segment number one. Okay, so from here, um, let's go with the title, like, yeah, like I said before, like, yeah, we call it the WTF, What the Fight Segment. There. So, like, going through, like, a couple interesting things that went from that one. Um, so, <clears throat> if anyone's been following um, the GOAT, Artem Lovov. <laughs> <laughs> what are you laughing? <laughs> he's, got a, he's got an upcoming fight with former, like, um, world boxing champion from there, um, Pauli Maganali. Um, and fuck me dead. The press, the press conference for this I just watched the other day was insane. Like, <laughs> Pauli has got a mouth on him. Yeah. And it's like he's dressed up in a full, like, blue, like, you know, baby blue suit. He looked like the cost, you know, like, like if 
Jersey Shore, and you know Jim Carrey's The Mask had a love child, <laughs> as it looked. And like, really, I'll pull a quote that I like. I like, you know, I basically had to put the captions on YouTube to kind of get it all. So, like, once Paulie Paulie got the mic, like, you know, Adam had his say from there, and then Paulie's just going a big rant. And to end it off, he just goes, "Quote from Paulie Malinaji: I'm going to spit on you at the end of the fight. Nah, I'm going to take my dick out after I knock your teeth out and piss in your toothless mouth." You piece of shit. <laughs> wow. Hi, mum. And it's like, uh, yeah, I thought, I thought Conor McGregor was the king of the trash talk, Jeez. you know, from there. And then Paulie did spit on Artem. Yeah, well. he, had a, he had a good track. So well, he just really just wants to get some bodily fluids. Are you saying he actually Arthur. tried to spit on him? Yeah. He, yeah, at the press Oh, Jesus Christ. Well, because I guess when he went, I'm going to spit on you. No, I'm going to piss on you. That doesn't mean he could, I'll spit on you now, though. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, man. Like, you know, he just went all R. Kelly on us. <laughs> but but like that, that it's just an interesting fight as well because like I guess like Paulie is like the the most well known boxer that ever do bare knuckle boxing as far as I know. Yes. Yeah. So like yeah, so it's I guess in this new wave of bare knuckle. Yeah, boxing, in this new anyway, wave. Yeah. What's his background, real quickly? Um, he was like yeah, he was a world boxing. I think he was a two time world boxing champion. I forget yeah. what weight he was from there. It wasn't too bad. He was he was actually a guy that um. Like, you know, like, you wouldn't think he'd, like, reach the top top, which he kind of didn't at some points. But he did yeah. yeah, he was just right on the cusp of a lot of it from there and fought, like, a lot of great fighters. But then, um, then I'm watching some of his fights as mm. well. It was actually all right. Like, defensively, it was good. Like, didn't have any, like, stopping power, really. But, like, you know, he just had a really fast combination on his hands. And even said in this fight as well, because I wasn't known as, a, I'm not known as a power puncher, but, like, you know, when I'm hitting people, like, when I'm hitting pads with these bare knuckles, I guess I'm just going to cut people up. Mm. Which is, you know, after Adam Lovers' last fight against Justin Knight, uh, J- uh, Jason Jay Knight, Knight yeah, he did. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like it, it does look like they're just going to fight with like you know baseball bats with like nails and. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's that was a very you know, interesting quote from Paulie from there, and like should be an interesting kind coming up. I think it's a couple of weeks away that one um so other other news come from there so going into one um sage northcutt made his debut in one against cosmo alexandre um probably like to most people watching would you say to say like cosmo is like a little bit unknown i would say yeah well i I think for a lot of the people tuning in to watch sage which Mm. there probably was a fair few cosmo yeah it was an unknown yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and like um this one, I think it only it went less less than thirty seconds from there. Cosmo just uncorked this massive right overhand and just cracked Sage Northcote and just dropped him straight to the ground. Off that, um, Cosmo's like uh, he's, he's he's up there, like you know, he's accomplished kickboxer, Muay Thai, mm. and even had like I think about eight MMA fights and a couple in Bellator as well. Yeah, and mm. also like uh, no, his record was like eight and one or seven and one, mm. and just lost the first one, yeah. one or the other eight. Um, and rematch the guy who beat him in his initial loss. So, yeah. like, that's not, like... I think Sage Northcutt got, like, a massively unfair barrage of criticism for this. Like, people can't treat it like he just really dropped down to fighting tin cans and, like, <laughs> got axed doing it. Like, there was a lot of headlines about, like, oh, Sage Northcutt joins the B-League of MMA and gets flattened. And it's like, Cosmo is, like, definitely... Even the last... Especially the last few years seem to have gone back to stand-up fighting, mm. to Muay Thai and kickboxing. But it's not like it was his first day. In MMA, like nine fights for eight wins is not a, like the, it's a decent enough base where he can make his stand up legitimately dangerous. It's not like he was going to be a fish out of water anywhere. Mm. 
Yeah, and like probably like in terms of matchup for me, this wasn't a kind matchup for Sage. Because like Sage, like really, he's not a ground fighter. Like he might do a blast double, but like we've seen before, he doesn't really know what to do on the ground. It's like he's all about his, he's like you know, stand up, you know, like about like his millions of karate world titles. Yeah, they announced him as what seventy seven time world champion. Yeah. yeah. I think they not. I think they include all the form titles and kind of titles as well. <laughs> no, 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 I don't think they're fighting titles. Like, it, what kind of sport do you have time to win seventy-seven world titles? <laughs> like, who is a major athlete that's like a seventy-seven time champion in anything? <sighs> in any sport, yeah. like I can't think of one. Mm, no, not at all. But like, yeah, it's just it, it was like yeah, like I said, like one I don't know if one's like you know just trying to show as well like you know like we're better than UFC because like you see the UFC guys here like just smash them all the time I, I noticed I didn't mention his UFC fights at all mm-hmm. I didn't hear any reference to any UFC stuff mm-hmm. yeah. no yeah I don't think they give him any shine from that one but I like, also think like they were setting him up to make him look stupid I thought because when they did the records like they announced Cosmo's MMA record mm-hmm. when they go number of fights number of wins blah blah then they flip over to do the announcement for Sage and they say his kickboxing record is 15 and 0 like, that doesn't make sense. If you're going to announce one of them by a kickboxing record and one of them by an MMA record for an MMA fight. But you'd also, you'd announce Cosmo by his kickboxing Muay Thai record. Especially because, like, Sage Northcutt is not 15-0 in kickboxing in any realistic sense. Like, he does that long pants, yeah, like that Chuck contact. Norris kickboxing <laughs> that was in the dome. Like, it wasn't real mm. kickboxing, like the kickboxing you see in yeah. other parts of the show. So to call him a 15-0 kickboxer, is disingenuous. It's just deliberately to try to make people go, oh, he's a kickbox- He's the kickboxer in this match. Mm-hmm. So then when he goes out there and he is not even the superior kickboxer in the ring within the MMA fight, yeah. just trying to kind of make him look dumb mm-hmm. to people who are just learning everything from the broadcast. Yeah, it's silly. But like, you know, going into the news part there, like um, for his fight, he got eight facial fractures. <laughs> that one. Mm-hmm. Spent an, a served amount of time in surgery for it as well. And like I guess like from that one because like the facial fetch from there I guess he's gonna be staying in Singapore uh, Singapore for a while because he can't fly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But like yeah, like um, if you go to his Instagram page, Northcote, like you know, you see the like the X rays of it, like um, it's like he's it's almost like his nose disintegrated, like the cartilage in his nose disintegrated. It's like half his face has looked caved in from there. But like um, it's just like it's one of those ones as well. Like it, like it, really, like it make him really get assess. Go, is this for me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. But like, if, if you watch like the highlights, and I think I posted on the Instagram stories on that night, they're already down. But you'll find a highlight from that one. And it's like, damn, that that right hand was just just came, it just blasted the life out of him. It was a good one. Yeah, that was on the money. Just mm-hmm. caught him doing like a sweeping out kind of pudding, like trying to disengage. Said nope, and just covered all the range at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, I'm getting to the last little piece of news for. WTF se- segment. Um, so, like, we are going to break down the one card, but there, like, just recently, there's been a huge, uh, huge development that just came out, and it's kind of really split a lot of people from there. Um, Into smart people and everyone else, yeah. <laughs> pretty much. From there, uh, Chatri uh, Sityatong uh, declares that Petr Morakot and the Petr Petr uh, Sun fight as a no contest. From there, the reason being that there was a lot of uh, quote illegal clinching that went on that the ref didn't pull up, and and so like in all fairness, he's saying from that one, he's basically said like this fight is in no contest now. We have to order an like you know an immediate rematch from there, and really like I think the general feel for everyone, like mostly everyone, yeah, is like basically this is like just a shit decision, like. 
what it kind of says to me is like, you know, Chatri's going out there, not so much as like, you know, he's trying to like basically say like, you know, I'm doing the right thing, you know, they did the wrong. So what I, it looks to me is like under these kickboxing rule sets that no one seems to quite understand that, that even the judges and the refs don't even understand it, but you do. But like, Share. yeah, it's like, yeah, however we make this like a little bit more public as well. And like, you know, and like just showing that you have no faith in your own self-governed sanction. Yeah. Mm. So like when you're saying that, that the education of your officials is subpar and you're videoing decisions now. It actually looks really bad. Like, I, you know, I'm only a layman when it comes to stand up fighting and everything. But even I saw, hang on, if you've got clinching allowed as part of the rule set, but you're going to no contest it because of clinching, mm. what does that actually mean? Mm. I can't figure it out. What's your thoughts? You? You've got a couple? All right. <laughs> <laughs> you want to really grind my gears. <laughs> I've been at this like overnight now. But, okay, so l- l- let me take this from like the absolute top because like I don't want to approach this as like, disclaimer, like I like kickboxing. Like I'm like a Muay Thai dude. I mostly fight Muay Thai. I fought kickboxing before. I've generally, yeah, <laughs> I generally like am more for like the development of Muay Thai, but I, I think kickboxing is cool. I have no problem with it. But let's talk, we're doing one championship kickbox. This is, this is where I see like people arguing about like what the rules are. This is, every kickboxing organization basically has its own set of rules. And like none of us, they're roughly the same, but they're not exactly the same. This was the one global kickboxing rule set, which like all we have to go by, like there is no rule book on this is what they put on screen and what they explain in graphics. So when people are saying like, you know, that's illegal because the rules of kickboxing are even experienced kickboxing people, that's the rules of kickboxing that you're familiar with. But this is like, and even the way it's explained, like when the, the, the they put the on-screen graphics on, it's like there's three seconds of clinch le- is legal to um, press forward with knee strikes. That's different to like other promotions around the world. There are like... Um, those like uh, more modern K1 rules where you can knee, but there's there's no grab at all. You're like the, I think Glory stipulates five seconds of clinching. So you're already like, when you say, this is the rules of kickboxing, you're holding that to a standard that you know from whatever sanctions that you work with, and that's cool. Here, there is no sanction. It's just the one rule set. Um, the Petch and D team did a really good job of taking this fight and putting a, t- a, a timer on screen every time the two guys clinched up. And it was generally not longer... Um, then three seconds. It was two to two and a half seconds per clinch. Peshmerkot very frequently clinches knees, disengages, re-engages to clinch again, which is a smart tactic. He's using his three seconds, disengaging and re-engaging. So if you see a long stretch of clinching and knees where the contact breaks, which I went back and looked um, even today, and there is a lot of them that you would call an exchange of maybe seven or eight seconds of clinching, but you look, they completely disengage. A regular, which is Atsushi Onari doing a good job as a referee to acknowledge that they've disengaged and re-engaged into the clinch. Um, also, I'm seeing a lot of people say like, uh, not a lot of people, I have seen some people say that when you clinch up in a kickboxing match and you uh, deliver some knee strikes, if the referee has to tell you to break or he calls the break, there's been three seconds, that your knees don't score. That's not the case. And I've looked up the rules of a number of major kickboxing sanctions, a couple of the ones I know, and organizations where the rules are readable, which I will reiterate, the one rules are not. Like, you can't find these. 
Mm. Um, they don't say that. They don't. They say you can engage the knee, and then the referee will call break if you clinch for too long. The reason that there is no kind of grounds to say that the party who delivers the knees doesn't score if the ref has to break is because if you look, this fight is a very good example, but there are a lot of kickboxing fights very similar. When someone is pressing in and dominating that range with knees, it's the side receiving the knees that generally will grab and squeeze to just close, the, uh, knowing that there is no active clinch allowed to just cover the space and have the referee break it, which happened a lot here. Peshmerga would be at that kind of middle inside range throwing knees. It was Giorgio would often either press forward into the ropes or just grab and hold for a referee break. So you can't penalize the work done because by that logic of it's up to the fighters to separate the clinch, Giorgio should be penalized for not using his feet or his positioning to not get need and just hold on and squeeze. It's not Pechmorikot's fault that they just end up tied up because neither wants to make any space. Pechmorikot's entering to do his work with the knees, which he's doing well and generally not holding more than three seconds. It's Giorgio's um, reluctance to budge and general preference to kind of just holding that space to get back out to the boxing range that he likes. That's what's uh, causing the referee to have to come in. The penalty would be, and this is the case for any rule break in any combat sport, ignoring the referee's instruction to break, which neither of them did. It was just referee would say break and they'd break after the three seconds. That, in any kickboxing promotion I've ever watched, that has this similar rule set, I would compare it to glory and things like that. That's the rules. You can come in and you can do your work um, with knees in the clinch, and then the referee will tell you to separate. If you fail to separate, that's grounds for deducting points for penalising and things like that. No one was ever warned about, like, and you see this in a lot of these promotions, no one was ever told. I mean, like, there were instances early where Pechmorikot would get told, basically, I didn't hear the wording, but don't hold on after I tell you to break, and then... It didn't really go any more than that because any time the referee told them to break, they would. So you can't really... This is just like taking any... I guess like almost taking authority out of the referee's hands in the fight. Like I think in in a situation such as this where the rule set in the first place is ambiguous, so you're leaving it up to a referee's interpretation. Like... That's the other thing is that if you're going to say three seconds of clinch, five seconds of clinch, whatever it is, when do you ever see a referee hit a stopwatch? But you're leaving it up to in the moment, one Mississippi. There's going to be varying um, amounts of time. So you're already making clinching time is already subjective and kind of up to referee's discretion. If you're going to leave it up to the referee's discretion, have the referee break them when he feels the breaks are right, have both guys comply with the breaks, then go back and say, no, that's not the rules. How can we have this kickboxing league moving forward if, like, we can't... We're not leaving decisions up to referees, which is one of the most important parts about having well-trained officials is that decisions are up to them. It's just, like, one does a good job considering their self-sanctioned, but this is the downside of self-sanctioned. And it's, like, no one really talks about it, but, like, it's really potentially shady to have a major organization that doesn't answer to any governing body ever. Like, it's a bit like, remember when the UFC was in China and Dana White personally removed a judge? No. <laughs> That's chartery every single event. He can do whatever he wants. Mm. He can judge a fight himself if he wanted. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like, there's no sanctions. No one's like, I, know, I don't want to get into all the other. Like, I've seen a lot of criticisms of one. I like one. But, like, you can't have an effectively a subjective rule set, three-second clinch, five-second clinch, whatever it may be. And it changes fight to fight, really. The Muay Thai is always the Muay Thai, but the kickboxing seems to be all over the place. It's subjective. 
in the first place, and then you're taking the fate out of the referee's um, decision making. It's not you can't have a league based on this. That is just like this is really really obvious. Petmorakot made a really good tactical move, especially after, and we'll get into what actually like the technical side of what happened in the fight. He made a really good switch up of his tactics. Giorgio had no answer for it, and then they've effectively like retroactively flipped the rules to say, "Nah, doesn't work like that. Can't that simply cannot happen." And this is really, and I've seen like. A couple of people have been saying, like, Pitch wasn't fighting kickboxing, he was fighting Muay Thai. No, he didn't throw an elbow. Mm. And, like, <laughs> if you were going to really let Pitch clinch, it would have looked ugly. Like, it would have been completely different. Like, he was just dominating these three-second stints, then breaking when told to break, because you really can't, like... It's, like, you can even do, like... Okay, you can clinch a knee one time, and then you have to break. That's easy. Then you can expect the fighters to break themselves. You can't really expect them to measure... a certain number of seconds, especially when promotion they're, to promotion is going to be different. Counting the okay. All right, I'm clinching. One, two, three, oh, break. Yeah, the idea that they have to count out three seconds themselves and then completely break, which, like I said, relies on the other person to oblige that break as well, which just generally doesn't happen like that. Mm. And at, least then, the, at least it's the bigger question. Why do they allow clinching at all in kickboxing? Great question, especially when you have a Muay Thai league. Like, I understand. This is like... Like I said, I like kickboxing. That's like, just criticize. So like, don't at me, kickboxing dudes. I like it. (laughs) It's good, okay? But like, a lot of these major kickboxing players, such as, like, Glory is a really good example. They have to make, like, in the markets that they exist in, they have to make kind of um, changes to the rules to kind of compromise with Thai boxing. Because guys will, a lot of Thai boxers hop over to kickboxing, especially in places like America where Glory is trying to set their feet. The developmental scene in Muay Thai is flourishing a lot better than kickboxing is, so it's a lot of these guys have a Muay Thai base that come over to kickboxing. That's cool. People are going to try different styles. But they're altering um, the rules. And Core Hammers from Glory said this about making the rules. He says, I come from a Muay Thai background, so I appreciate clinch fighting. So I let guys fight for five seconds in the clinch. I get that when you're Glory and you're trying to provide an opportunity. So you say, we'll budge a little bit on for the Thai boxers to get everyone in one place. But one has a Muay Thai league. So they don't have to offer leeway to Thai boxers. They have, like, Thai boxers are allowed to fight their own rules there. So why don't you just create, like, maybe they should do this now. Just go, oh, maybe we fucked up on the kickboxing rules there. Make a, a really, truly kick, like, when you say kickboxing to, like, someone who's in the, the, especially the New South Wales scene 15, 20 years ago, kickboxing is punches and kicks. Like, there's no little bits of legal clinching and like for the most part that wasn't really needed either. Nah. Do that. Do an actual kickboxing league and just say the guys that want some clinching at all you go and do full Muay Thai rules and if you just want to punch and kick do kickboxing. Like you don't have to have like like I even saw a couple of people like saying like should be full clinching in the kickboxing rules. Make it modified Thai. Don't fucking do that. <laughs> mod Thai sucks. Like, yeah, don't have a Muay Thai league league. in a Mod Thai league. Hmm. That's stupid. Instead of trying to like Take your kickboxing league and make it closer to Muay Thai to the point where you've just got this weird, like, convoluted system of, like, having Muay Thai and 80% Muay Thai, which is, like, basically what the kickboxing leagues are trying to do now. Have a Muay Thai league and really make your kickboxing league kickboxing because that was just stupid. And it's the kickboxing guys are like, well, the Muay Thai guys, if they want to come to kickboxing, they can't use their clinch. Simple as that. No, because they're getting told that they can have three-second clinches. Using them, like... It's not like you have three seconds of clinch in case you end up in the clinch by accident. You can innovate with the rule set 
clinch knee, three seconds, break, clinch knee again. It's not like, you know, like, the Muay Thai guys can come in and adapt their clinching to the rule set. Then you can't say that's unfair. Like, they just, anytime you come up with a new combat sports concept, there's room to innovate around the rule set to use your attributes in your favor. And I think Petch Morocco did that so beautifully. And then you're just taking the credit away from that all together and going, no, there was never clinching. They'll probably go back and edit the event to be like, and clinching is illegal under the... (laughs) Retroactively. This was just dirty. This was just the two pin-up boys of the um, tournament, both losing in the same night, and them just finding a loophole try to shoot one back in. Yeah. I think as well, like for this one, I reckon what's behind the scenes also, it's like basically Pet... Like Petrosian just basically goes, if this is how it's going to be, cash me out one... All together. Yeah, it does sound like Petrosian strong arm the promotion. Mm. And then Chester goes, oh, wait a minute. Nope, nope, nope. Well, it's like, uh, I can change something for you. And the Petch and D team sound like they're pulling um, yeah. Petch Morricot out, which is crazy. And also, like, I don't know if they got his take on it because when, when I see it, did it did sound like um, the Petch and D boss was speaking on behalf of Petch Morricot. Yeah. So I know he, um, they said he went, um, and got ordained as a monk. Did did a bit of time. Oh yeah. After his fight, yeah. which they do sometimes. Yeah. yeah. At the ties, like to do it. So maybe he isn't around at the moment. <laughs> but like, he's like, I'm gonna speak for him. But he's going. We don't care about the money. We're just pulling him. It's like, oh, that's a, especially when they write it out the way they do. It's like, damn, I know 32 million baht is a lot of money. It's like, even when you say like 32 million baht. Entirely, yeah. is a lot of money. I just try and think because, like, you know how ties are with camps. They're basically like racehorses, some of them. So, yeah. like, how much would that money would he see compared to like his camp gets? From what um, I hear, yeah. like the Petch and DP, look, especially Petch and D being big and very like international style business. I think like generally pretty good, like mm-hmm. um, you know, pretty ethical business people. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, pulling him from the tournament is. A massive call, but I completely understand it. Like that's almost a very um, Western Western athlete call to make. Like it's like something a, an American fighter would do. Like because if you win a fight, and I believe, like I think the majority, like it's not like any of the commentators here either were saying, "Man, um, Peshmerga got holding those clinches too long" or something like that. Like everyone was just watching this fight and going, "Wow, Peshmerga." taking it to Giorgio and Giorgio is struggling to deal with it. Mm. It's like, to win a fight fairly and then be told that, yeah, a party is just going to go, I can't win there. Yeah. Like, you know, it's not really Petch style to come out and, and try to flatline Giorgio, like try to sit and box him, something like that. Like, I think most of Petch kind of avenue for victory against Giorgio involved going to the points. And it's obvious now, like, they will try with all their might to give this um, decision to Petrosian, which coming back to the idea of self-sanctioning is, Who's going to be judging this thing when they fight again? What's their motivation for doing it, though? For pulling him from the tournament. Uh, well, I understand. The, well, the camp, his camp would probably be trying to pull him to get some leverage. Oh, well, you're not, Possibly, going, to have, yeah. you're not going to have a rematch, so you know, come to the table. Mm. But what would be one's what's what's one's motivation for doing it in the Redoing first place? Redoing the fight. Yeah. Um, keeping Petrosian in the tournament, I think. I think, like, they said, like, they made, like, the big mistake that kickboxing is... Like, kickboxing is cursed. If you want two dudes to fight, you just match them. If you put them at the opposite ends of a bracket <laughs> of a long tournament, like an eight-man tournament, across a few months, <clears throat> they won't both make it. Yeah. It's just a curse. Like There's too many variables at stake. Especially after we watch this tournament from there. There's some fucking animals. Yeah, beast of a tournament. We'll get into it. But like, yeah. But if they have pulled... Um, but well, this is what... Like, if Petch Morocot's pulled... 
uh, and he can't rematch Giorgio, which is what they want to do. I actually think you've got to take Giorgio out of the equation too. But they won't do that. They'll give Giorgio a match. But are we going to hear from our reserve winner? Yeah. Daniel Dawson. The Rock Dawson is the reserve. <laughs> so I actually think if um, Pechmorokos not coming to the party, that should put Giorgio on the shelf. Um, and Daniel should go straight through. Because that's what a reserve does. He still fought for his place. Yeah. They had a reserve fight um, on the night. But I think maybe now we're going to see Daniel Dawson versus Giorgio Petrosian for the spot. Right. Fair play to Fair the Rock. Fair play if they want to... Do it. But yeah, trust in the rock, leave the rock. I'd like to see that. <laughs> I'd like to see Daniel Dawson move through. Ah, fair enough. All right, so we'll talk a little bit more of the one event there. But that concludes our first segment of WTF, What the Fight, from there. And you'll listen to a, light, a nice little sweep and we'll get back to you. This is the Enter the Double Dragon Podcast. Okay, welcome back again. Glad you didn't leave us. <laughs> so now we're going to the second portion, which is like our recaps and breakdowns from there. A lot of technical analysis from that one. And yep, we have a um, yeah, a lot to talk about because like, yeah, one did have the past event, Enter the Dragon Singapore from there, which featured the featherweight tournament and real surprising results from this tournament as well. Like like pretty much in almost in all the brackets there. Um, let's go down. Yeah, I don't know if I picked any fight correct. Oh, I might have picked every fight incorrectly. There's a good chance that I did as well. Yeah. I only got one. Who did you get? Tonin. So let's go from that. Let's, let's, let's go straight off that. Talk about that Gary Tonin fight a bit. It's, it was, it's actually like um, pretty interesting because like, you know, Gary Tonin's like an unbeaten streak in MMA now. I feel like five. Or maybe five, zero, yeah. five zero. Yeah. And like in the last couple of months, I see him like he was playing with his stand up a bit. Uh, but this one looks like he's just making a statement for like you know heel hooks work in MMA. Yeah. Um, so how did how did that go? Like, so what were his entry points off of there? So it looked like he was trying to hit a single leg, but like I sort of looked at it again in the highlights. I think maybe he was just faking for the single just mm. so he could get underneath and turn into the heel hook. Mm. That's what it looked like. And then someone did a side by side comparison with um, Polaris entry, and it was virtually identical in one of Polaris's um, MMA fights. So I think, yeah, I think he was just like, I'm going to make a statement. I'm going to, I'm going to go into this. I'm going to go into this fight to show everyone how good grappling is um, in in MMA, and and he did it. It was a pretty tight heel. It was, it was a little bit unorthodox as well because people who know a bit about grappling will understand that the Ashigrami kind of position to get to the heel hook. But he was looked like he was pushing off um, the guy's chest with one of his feet. To keep that distance, which is a bit unusual, um, but it worked really well. Yeah, hmm. yeah. So like in that fight, like Gary Tone won by heel hook in the first submission against uh, Yoshi uh, Yoshi uh, Nakahara from Japan. Like yeah, sucks to go in there and only last a minute. <laughs> it's like, it's like, but that's how it goes sometimes from that. All right, so let's go from there. Let's talk about our first featherweight uh, quarterfinal from there. Uh, so we had Jabba Askarov, like. Fucking war, war horse from the old days, like you know, Muay Thai. I remember still like uh, the Contender Asia. Contender Asia, yeah. That was banger. That was a banger tournament. That one, Great which tournament. which had Johnson Klein as well yep. and John Wayne John Park. Parr. Some the really good as names. Well. Yeah, it was like it was there. You think about it now, it's like damn, that was a star-studded list. I like to see another season, to be honest. Yeah. Wasn't there? There was another season, but it never aired, or did it? Something weird like that. Yeah. 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 Disappointing. But yeah, so we had Jabba Askarov who 
from Russia originally, but is residing in Melbourne at the moment. Um, and then we had Enrico Kell from Germany, another solid uh, fighter as well that's fought some of the best, like Bokau and that, and like had like really good stints in K, uh, K1 mm-hmm. also. Um, so this was, like, this was a really interesting match. In terms of like you know Jabra Askarov with his style, like he's just a fucking crazy man, mm. you know. And Kill's like you know it's like pretty much like that, uh, just that typical kind of German, just you know just very like structured in what he does, like you know, <clears throat> just like um, following the game plan from there. But yeah, how did it look from the onset? Really, what what like what one jab of the fight? I think like what you can see, uh, even from early in this fight, was just like a massive power differential. Mm. Like, and I think it was the difference is just like, I also think this was an interesting one for me because I was leaning the way of Enrico Kale, mm. but that's with the knowledge that Jabba had beaten him twice before. I was just kind of looking as like, I thought Enrico was looking sharper at the two, like Jabba's form's been up and down. Mm. And, you know, Enrico's a bit younger than Jabba. At least like, you know, less, mi- less miles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Most people have less miles than Jabba. But I think Jabba looked like, he's, he's found his feet again. Yeah. For sure, in this fight, I thought it looked good. I thought there was just like I could see from the onset that um, you know, Cal was just looking to kind of like um, fire that left middle kick up, you know, uh, open stance match, orthodox mm-hmm. versus southpaw, kind of get that middle kick through. Left cross was there as well, but he was throwing things like threading combinations together. But it was just like the difference was like Jabba could just sit and just swallow that combination. If he fired back, you could see the difference in impact with what they were landing. Mm-hmm. And then you could kind of, if you watch the two and like kind of start to read the fight, you could see Enrico was trying to play that kind of, like trying to discourage Jabba with volume, like tap, 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 tap. Yeah. Whereas like Jabba didn't care. He was just like, you won't like, it takes a lot to really kind of move Jabba. That's his build and that's just like his fighting demeanor. He sits really wide in his stance. He sits quite low and he's just a brick. Like, he's just so <laughs> solid. They're like, and he's just like made a career of like he will take one to give one. Mm. But like there are a few uh, pretty nice, pretty nice sets here. It's like um, Jabba would set his right kick really nicely. Like he would just fire it up across the arms of Cal, and and you could see Cal's plan was to kind of like if the kick came across the arms to to use that to keep um, Jabba kind of center line for his left cross. But he just couldn't find it. Like it was just that sort of like. Just like a little bit, like he could he could touch Jabba with his hand a little bit, but it, not in a way that was really threatening Jabba from coming forward. So throughout like the majority of the first round, Enrico was struggling to land with anything of kind of impact or power outside of an inside leg kick, mm. which like you could see was bruising up Jabba's leg, but it wasn't really bothering him a whole lot. Yeah, there, was a, there was a few groin kicks in this fight as well. Yeah, there was a couple of groin kicks from both sides. Yeah, but, so, yeah, that's what happens when you get that. Yeah, like lots of inside. Lots of inside kicks, yeah. Opposite stance match. And also someone who just sits as low mm. as Jabba does, it kind of just like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Makes him a prime target. But what I liked from Jabba here was um he was doing kind of what you call like a... Kind of like he was slipping what guys are generally taught is the wrong way. Mm. So he's slipping like in that opposite stance, he would slip rather than to the outside of straight punches that were coming at him. He would slip... um. Enrico's lead towards his other hand and then just sit his head way out to the outside and just thread like he was dropping like an overhand shot like you watch the way he drops that overhand where he sits his head really low lowers his base and then like that it's coming like across the face like, it's not like he's trying to shoot it behind the ear and that, like he Jabba played really well too 
Enrico's general center line method of attacking, if you watch this one, and like what I really, really like, like where Jabba started to impress me, just like um, tactically was like end of the, the second round, start of the third, is like watch Jabba's play if you go back and have a look at this fight. It's he stands at range with Enrico a little bit to kind of entice him to come in with a combination. And, and what Enrico, he was being quite readable and predictable in this fight. Like he was really enjoying like a kind of just... He was threading through. He's like, if Jabba threw, he'd come back left hand down the pipe and then kind of like off of a, a lead round kick either to the back leg or to the midsection without switching. So it's just the left hand comes out and the pullback kind of sets that switch. So it's kind of like the, you know, slap, slap. And he was kind of... Uh, he did start to... As he could, and Enrico has a habit of doing this. I saw this in, in, in a couple of his fights. If he starts to feel like he's down on points, he really starts to play like a march-up and single knee game. So it would kind of be that lead with the hand, come through the left first, cover distance and finish knee. So Jabba, he does this really nice. He gets on the balls of his feet, hops back um, to kind of just give room to what Enrico's going to throw. And then once he hops back on the balls of his feet, sits his heels down as soon as he lands, and then he'll have Enrico running in. And that's what that kind of like... um where he really had uh, Enrico on Queer Street um, at the end of the second when he got saved by the bell, was that hop back, plant his heels, and then just rip that overhand from, basically pulled yeah. it out of his pocket. <laughs> just throw, because Enrico's got that roll on, he thinks it's his time, and he you can see when you get, if you give Enrico a little bit of space, he takes it with punch, punch, like that, that German kickboxer style, moving up, trying to finish with that walk-up knee. So he, he catches um, Enrico coming up above his guard to throw mm. that knee and then just, yeah, overhand landing off. flush. It's like, um, yeah, like, yeah, Enrico was, like, landing some shots from there, but, like, you know, it's like you were saying before online, like, um, yeah, Jabba was just landing the flight-changing shots. Though. Yeah. The ones that, like, you know, really counted, like, the damaging shots in particular. Then getting creative as well as, like, Sun Shriek and Enrico and just throwing like that. I guess it's semi-legal, like spinning, for, <laughs> spinning back forearm. Yeah, yeah, yeah mostly that. leaning with the forearm rather than the glove. <laughs> but yeah, really hurt Enrico with a couple. And then like Enrico, like as he started to sort of get flustered, he started that sort of like spinning back kick, which wasn't really going anywhere. And also just kind of, if you watch like the direction of the spin against someone in the opposite stance to him, like it was kind of just putting him, spinning him into where Jabba wanted to throw, which wasn't really helping him. And yeah, didn't really gather in his back on the spinning kick. But like also Java, like once his legs started, because you could see like he was breaking Enrico's rhythm. He, he would hop southpaw just for little bits of time, like kind of walking in our stance. And then Enrico would kind of have to pause when his go-to target wasn't there. So like uh, Java read patterns really nicely here. And yeah, just did some legit damage to Enrico. I thought this was a really good fight to watch. I actually probably enjoyed this fight more watching it after the fact than I did just letting it roll because there's actually a lot to look at here. Mm. Yeah, I enjoyed this one. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny, like, because it's something like, I don't know if it's just a recent just moving to Melbourne and working with people like, you know, Peter Haddon and things like that. It's like he was actually following a game plan. Yeah. So the source like, he was just, not usually his style, just like, he usually goes, I'm just going to sit here and swing. Yeah. And then hopefully, and then if I hit something, I know I'm going to hurt you, but it's predictable. And you maybe got to look close to see, but who's setting traps too? Like we mm. talked about that kind of hot back, like just, mm giving that read to Enrico and then just setting his feet and just really like, you see like the way that he throws a punch is the way that some people in gym would tell someone don't throw like that, it's too open. Mm. But he just found his time and then he's got the experience where if he's going for it, he's going for it. He dipped his head right down low, lowered his legs and just threw his whole body weight. That's why it was hurting Enrico so bad. Yeah, that was a good performance by him from there. And bought his ticket into the semis. <laughs> Unless they overturned. 
Actually, never know. <laughs> no, this isn't the round four. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on who you're the A side. Uh, so going up from that, so um, we had Smoking Joe Nanawat in Thailand, but he's, I think he's residing in America. He's moment? in America. Yeah, that's right. Unless he moved. I think he trained for this one in Thailand. Mm-hmm. But okay. yeah, he Fair has enough. been at Bangkok. Um, and then we had like a, a, like a late replacement, but like a dark horse. Or like, you know, um, I didn't really know much about him, but uh, Sasha uh, Moisa from Ukraine. Um, but... Fuck, Smoking Joe lived up to his name. This mm. one, like, this is like the, it's like, it's, it's the kind of like how he performed is like, would you see him in like in a third round of a fight? Yeah, he just did it straight off the bat. Straight this off time. Bat, yeah. yeah, like you know, I guess like you know, a million years lit, lit a fire under his ass. Thirty-two million baht. <laughs> so like, looking into this fight from here, um, what are some of the stuff that Joe Nadawa did from that that's like you know really stood out? That like you know could he like you know said yeah this he could go all the way in this kind of tournament as well. What I saw um, from Joe Nadal in this fight was just elite, elite level kick timing. And you watch the way when he sets a kick for this fight. So there was a few like early in the fight. Like, very interestingly in this fight, Joe Nadal did a few of the same things like really over and over again. Is that He was just able to just like time them so well that it didn't really matter. Like um, he was really loving that cross to the bot, like that right hand to the body hook up top low kick. Just timing it so well off, um, you know, uh, Sasha throwing hands up high. Uh, Nadabot would just dip his legs down to deal with the punch, come through to the body, change level, come back up top. And just that kind of like blistering level change to not just um, like he was throwing with power, like he was hurting yeah. with it, but also just making that little bit um, reluctant to engage because he, he tries to set in with one and three come back. Just too hard. Like, he really made it hard for um, Moisa, Sasha Moisa, to try to get a roll on here because anytime they kind of engage or they were exchanging, power low kick or power middle kick coming through. And you can see the way that, like, if Sasha threw a punch, Nadawa would lean out from the punch. And as he's out, he would kind of use that posture to set a kick to come through. So he's just using rolling with the punches, like, you know, you see a lot of elite boxers can do to roll and counter punch back, but just using like that lean back tall posture is like if he dips out of a hook, that as soon as he leans back in, he's loaded his whole weight through a kick. Just like really beautiful to watch. And you can see like um this was just an elite level of just using the first round to just assert that the middle range is not comfortable. But more so just all power through leg kicks, all power through middle kicks, just good, assertive, like, go-away tactics. Like, you can't sit here and scrap with me. Like, you will, like, wearing down kind of things. Because mm-hmm. um, when they came, what I really liked is what, looking at that second round, as you could see, Joe had set some plays. Like, we mentioned that um, cross, hook, uh, like, you know, that straight to the body, hook, kick. That was working really well. Already in the first round, he was switching the level that the kick came to to make Moisa unsure of where it was coming to. But you could see Moisa trying to, like, his sort of plan for the most part was to kind of just ride with the kicks. He was not going to block them, you know, not with a, with a full check or something like that. Just sort of ride the kick and fire a kick back of his own just to assert himself back. But Joe, like, try to give something to make Joe think twice about kicking. But then Nadal would switch it up on him. So he'd come with that straight to the body, hook up top. And then Sasha was already waiting brace for that kick and the, the straight would come to the head instead. So it was straight to the body, a hook to the head, straight to the head. Then the kick would come just with that that straight right as a, a rhythm breaker to mm. snap his head back. Just like really good use of his position to deliberately give some tells across the first round mm. and then break rhythm on, on what he had said himself. Like 
just really two tactically two steps ahead. This fight now up, but then the finishing sequence was a good. Like we said, like he played that good kind of like attrition game of just kicking the leg, kicking the leg, because yeah. he landed a wicked um, low kick in the third round, and then Moisa tried to kind of just roll with it by hopping into the other stance like that, just that little mm. shift in south, just to put the leg behind him a second and just set a counter and watch when. Nadawat just bowls this overhand, like a similar kind of overhand that Java was throwing. Yeah. Sasha's feet are like dead level, and there's just no weight in them. He just doesn't have his legs under them all. That's why he went down so hard and face planted because Nadawat saw that he'd done enough damage with the leg to make him pull it back and just caught him without his feet under him, trying to, trying to uh, just well, shuffle his feet. Yeah, it's almost like he was shuffling, but he was also like throwing a hook at the same time. Yeah. And then Nadawat like, just, just, just bowled that bit on the inside of his hand, and damn, he just like... um. Just airborne. Yeah. Sasha. Almost could have ended the fight there, really. Like, Sasha got up pretty well, but then just, like, watch the way, like, you know, um, when Joe gets the second knockdown, it's like, he just kind of um, fires, like, uh, around the guard, like, these deliberately, like, exaggerated round punches to kind of make Sasha put the earmuffs on. Mm-hmm. Then once the hands come back, he just threads his cross through the middle, like, really beautiful, just set up against a shelled opponent. And just, like, Doing just enough, really, like, just firing, just, like, Sasha's already in a lot of trouble. Just It's just that semi-committed, not really uh, overdoing it to get out of position for anything that might come back. Just bringing the hands out so we can put that straight right through the middle. And then, like, there was, it like, and he did get back up after that, but there was just nothing to it. Nah, yeah. Joe could throw whatever he wanted. He's just, like, yeah, he was just, just barely surviving. Waiting for the refs to step in, but, yeah, those two knockdowns were ace. Yeah, yeah, it was a really good performance by Joe Nutterwell. That one and made him a real strong contender in this uh, tournament as well. Yeah, that performance. So, going up from there, well, we already talked about Sage Northcutt versus Cosmo. <laughs> we, we know how that went down. <laughs> Did you catch any of the other MMO fights in this one? Was, um, nah, I sort, of, I sort of jumped through to the, yeah. the, the main stuff. It's funny though, it's like like the, the tournaments are there, but they still put so much MMA fights on as well. Yeah, and I don't know, it's like, is, is this necessary? Is this building up to stuff? Oh, actually, like as I'm listening here, there's a, a lightweight Grand Prix uh, semi final, but yeah, whatever. <laughs> that was Amir Khan. And, yeah, Amir Khan, and yeah, so and I think that I, Russian I, yeah, I did watch that. Yeah, one. I saw this. It's yeah. meant to be a good KO win, though. Yeah, the first that was round. sweet. I have to come back and see that sometime. I probably won't, though. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say it now. All right, so next up, um, so we had the legend Yodson Clive. IWE Fairtex, what's that mean? I don't, I don't even get that. Well, they say Iway. Like, it's, a, it's, oh, a, yeah, it's so a word, like, not yeah. a. Yeah. Okay. It's not an acronym. It's a it's a like a some kind of sports media type brand. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's like they got the brand they got the gym, but hey, it's like, you know, we sponsor you too. Put it in your nose. Like, yeah, okay. <laughs> uh versus Sammy Sanza for me. So I this one was probably the most shocking one to me. This was a shocker. Yeah, because like, you know, Sammy Sanza like came out, man with a game plan from there. Ended up knocking down Yotsen Clyde legitimately yeah. as well. Yeah, Yotsen Clyde like got up from the knockdown and then mm-hmm. fell down again. Yeah. Uh, some people were saying to me as well, like uh, well, like Rowan in particular was saying like, you know, because uh, our good friend Elias was officiating the match from there. Like, you know, the knockdown happened. He was turning his back to get Sammy Sanchez on stage. And like in that time, Yotsen Clyde got back up and actually stumbled back. Yeah, the ref didn't see this. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Would that would have played, if, if Elias saw that, would that play into like, would he have stopped it, do you reckon? Or you reckon he would have let it go go on? Yeah, it's interesting to say, because generally speaking, if a fighter tries to bounce right back to their feet, if a, if a fighter tries to enter the count and 
falls down. A lot of refs will just wave it off. But you think like did kind of just get up, fall down, and then kind of laugh and hop back up again. Like he still sort of looked like he was with it. Yeah. Like I, I think the fight. I think probably I'd have to ask him mm. had he seen it, he would have still just stood, given Yod the same chance to answer the yeah. camera. I think it's one of those ones as well. Like you just like you know you try and stay impartial. Like you stay impartial as a ref and things like that. But you know, just know some fighters as well. Like you just go like you like get yeah. Fingers, he, he can take it. Yeah, and like especially as like you look at you like like Alan Sorry says he always sees their face, sees the eyes, and then yeah. makes a decision from there anyway. Mm. Yeah. Like if his eyes are still right, like if his eyes are like going like a fucking chameleon all over the place, like he probably go, oh, okay, yeah, I think we can stop. This. He didn't look out of it to me. In fact, nah. I thought maybe he slipped a little bit trying to get up. Yeah, a little bit. That's yeah. fine. Yeah, but um, yeah, Sammy Sansa, um, they actually like uh, they fought before, haven't they? Yeah, you're smashing. Yeah, but I guess Sansa this time like came with like a really good game plan this one so like um what were the things that like basically made sense like such an such an animal in this match I think he really played as perfect a game as we've ever seen anyone play against Yotan Clark because Yotan Clark is one of those guys it's kind of fascinating how similar the techniques he throws across like all of his fights are mm-hmm. like he doesn't have like a like compare him to like a Nongo, like someone like that that just really just has like an entire textbook of techniques that they reach to and, and he's always showing different looks in their fights. Yotan Klo is a stand strong fighter that just uses a few things so well and so powerfully that like not a lot of people can deal with it. And that's kind of like Santa, Sammy Santa came in with a plan to deal with what Yotan Klo does like so routinely. And I thought like, the first thing that I noticed in this fight, like, and, and it comes out in the first sort of minute, is like, well, Yotan Klo is really having trouble with um, Santa's right middle kick, like the way it would just come over his arm. And, yeah. and he was putting that up, like, yeah, up across Yotan Klo's left hand, which is a good bet straight away, was landing hard, yeah. which is good because, you know, we, we know that Yotan Klo has a wicked left hand at any angle, comes really nicely as a straight to the body, straight to the head, his uppercut's wicked. Um, he generally throws the his his rear side, his left side straight though, and, and the kind of circular angles come off the lead side. He loves his like lead uppercut, lead hook. He's, he's, he's sort in this fight. He's just got a jackhammer lead uppercut. Yeah, as well. Yeah, lead uppercut was wicked. But you can see like Santa is just like keeping Yodsan Clay at the end of his kick, at the end of his kick, and then like as Yod would kind of try to return kick. Well, he kind of took a gamble on this one because you could see Santa, he wasn't trying to really, like, check the kick or, like... Like, you don't really want... I wouldn't think that, like, a great plan, especially early, would be trying to, like, catch and counter your St. Class kick because mm. you have to wear that in your ribs anyway. Like, I wouldn't... It's kind of just almost giving God what he wants a bit. Like, I think yeah. he'll take his chances against someone trying to catch his kick. Mm. Santa would kind of do that sort of double forearm block for the kick. Like, he'd just lock his arm in and reach the other glove over, but he'd really scoop the kick down throw Yotan Clyde to the side a little bit and then come with his overhand, right? That's a really smart tactic with the kick because he had to wear it over his arm a bit, which is could have worn him down over the course of the fight. But when you've just got the three rounds, you can kind of take your chances with these things. And against someone like Yotan, you have to create like a source of punishment for the kick coming through. And it's a very hard kick to kind of deal with in a way that completely kind of dampens its impact. Like you have to sort of... He had to wear it a little bit. There's going to be some impact to that. But really using that opposite side hand to control the leg and change Yod's position and then just burst through was really nice. Um, I thought 
as well. Like he just had some really nice distance controlling tactics that like made Jot St. Clair, I thought, pretty impatient at the range they were fighting at. Like he's flicking up that right middle kick a lot, landing with it well, right knees coming through the middle. And I think like sort of where this knockdown came from was like um Jot St. Clair just went Okay, I'm fucking sick of this. I'm kind of getting scored on here. And he just <laughs> went with like his signature arm. Was it a hook? I think it was a, like like his lead side hook. Just goes, mm. all right, get a taste of this. And just whips it again. But he was too far away. Mm. It's like Santa's right hand came over the top of it and just dropped down on kind of the top of your head. Yeah. It was just a hook versus a clean straight. Too short. It was mm. just like the um, time was going to take to cover that. Santa's fucking tall. Yeah. So tall. And then that's what kind of put your St. Clair on his butt in that first round. It's mm. just like he was tricked into thinking he was closer than he was, I think. Because, like, Santa would come in with his guard high and sort of sit over Yod and just give him that little bit of a taste of, like, here, I'm, I'm right here, come for it. But then he would mix that in with... He would kind of push space with his right knee or he'd, put the, or he'd kind of skip out a little bit, put the kick up top. So he just kind of altered that distance, scored points, scored points, enough to make Yod St. Clair that little bit desperate. And he gets quite disdainful, Yod St. Clair, yeah. with good reason because... He's so off and so much. And especially in this case, like I think he played on Yosef Clark's kind of psychology a little bit of knowing he'd smashed Santa before. Yeah. Is that Yosef Clark went, okay, see how this goes. Went for like his um, right hook and yeah, just clean straight right came over the top. And, and this was a sweet knockdown. Like it wasn't like a weird flash thing. Like Yosef Clark went down clean, got, got counted, tried to get up and fell down. Like we talked about, like this was money. And I think like, that just kind of set the tone for the fight. Sound. I think that gave him like that extra little bit of confidence he needed to just really keep taking it to Yod because this second round was carnage. I was just <laughs> like, Yod St. Clair obviously knew like couldn't take Santa lightly anymore and just started ripping in lead uppercut, lead uppercut, even moving lead uppercut, rear uppercut, like right up, left up. And then starting to actually like snap Santa's head up a few times. I think like when you saw it, because like, like Santa was. Guarding up pretty well. Like, the only thing he could get through is, like, yeah, through the bottom of his guard was the uppercut. Like, yeah. everything else wasn't laying super clean, but his uppercuts were fucking pinging. Yeah, and then as those uppercuts, like, Santa made a couple of pretty sweet tactical adjustments here. And this was one of the best things I saw from him. I really like that right knee, right hand. Mm. So he just clear a little bit of space with the knee, and as he'd set the, the, the foot down, the right hand would come. So it's that same thing. Yod's then trying to hop through distance, which he does do. Like, he'll just kind of burst, like an, an, an all-explosive movement. Yeah. So, like, knee comes up, foot comes back down, right hand comes threaded through the middle. But what I also really liked, this was, like, quite simple, but one of my favorite tactical plays here from Sammy was he would draw the guard, like, um, way in close against, um, like, so, like, right, like, both forearms are across his face, sort of. Yeah. When you're saying, because like, you're saying, like, like, that tap, tap, tap with the straights and then to fire something through, so a hooking shot through. And then generally it's like that, lead right hook, and then that brings the guard out, and then the um, Yod's left hand follows. He would bring that guard right in just to kind of entice Yod St. Clair to throw something hooking. Yod St. Clair would come with the, the hook, and it was that same thing. And then, like, once that um, big hook came, he'd pull back and answer just with that that same thing, that right hand, the same one that dropped him, was just like, come on, like, I'm dra- drawing my guard in really close, like, leaving the side of my head exposed. And then yeah. Yod St. Clair would just... See that, especially being down on points, like dangerous game to play for sure. Mm. But um, Yod St. Clair would see that and go, okay, here's my shot. Throw everything behind it and Santa would just pull his torso back and then just have that right hand waiting. So yeah, like sweet showing by Sammy Santa. Mm-hmm. And definitely I think 
you probably have to say that makes him the favorite, but yeah, it's like, it's like, like just from that performance because I think it's mostly just the shock, really. Yeah, it's like no, no expected him. I couldn't believe it watching it. It's like you know, had a chance of winning, but not in the way that he did, though. Yeah, yeah, and hey, you know, like um. It's like, you know, you could see him in the finals. You could have Joe Nardawa. I like Joe Nardawa you know, versus um, Sammy Sanna. It's like a different fight again. From yeah. There and, like, it is a really interesting battle. Yeah. On. Right. But going from that one, so, like, yeah, the, the mighty Yachts and Clyde tumbled and Sammy Sanna, another Frenchman as well. Because, like, you know, French is <laughs> very strong showing, like, in Muay Thai lately. And, you know, this kickboxing one. And they still been going at it on... Um... Instagram. Oh, so. <laughs> well, like, not really going at it, but your team clothes been posting like heaps, like, I want to rematch with Sammy Santa. I want to oh, rematch. Yeah. And then, like, <laughs> maybe they'll do it again. Be like, we're redoing it. Yeah. Who knows? But he's like, yeah, I want to rematch. And now your team clothes going, I want to rematch, but this time in MMA gloves, which is like, okay, but like, it's not like Muay Thai standard is MMA gloves either. Like, <laughs> you only just started fighting in MMA gloves. Mm. But then, like, Sammy Santa started posting, I'm in Pattaya, let's fucking fight in the street. <laughs> he just takes it to a new level <laughs> he's like I already beat you like this is a tournament I don't have to fight you again <laughs> you want to fight like it's still for real home he's like come to my gym I'll just fight <laughs> alright and let's go to the last quarter final like the one that we talked about here but let's just like you know, a little bit more technical breakdown we did cover it a bit but it is like one of the legends of the, like you know the, the striking world from there Georgia uh, Petrosan or Petrosian I don't know you want to say it um, from Italy from there. The Italian stallion. Yeah. He is. <laughs> He's a good looking fellow. Except for his nose. <laughs> the doctor himself. Um, versus, yeah, Petra Morocot uh, from Petra D Academy. And that. So, like we said, we talked about the clinching style. We, it's like we talked about, like, you know, like, um, in terms of like the, what Petra Morocot did, like, so well. But what was wrong with, uh, what was wrong with, uh, with Giorgio? Like, you know, it was like, he, he couldn't get his usual game that he was usually going from there. Was the clinching that big of a factor from there? Or was Petra like doing other stuff with that to really kind of like, yeah, like um, almost like nullify like Petrosian's usual game plan? Well, I think the first round of was like classic Petrosian. Like, and I kind of watched his channel. Like, okay. Like probably the fight I was expecting to see. And it was de- actually in, it was classic Petrosian in the sense that like he was very difficult to touch and kind of just like too smooth. But it was also like a, the new Petrosian that we've been seeing against like, aggressive. yeah, he's aggressive and he's, he's throwing with power, but it was like not too much to get into with the first round. It was like, he, he was using his left to the body really nicely. Um, uh, his left kick was on, like he was finding that left kick up the middle, just breaking the timing. Um, he was doing a lot of really nice, like catch kick, disengage and punch counter. Like he would catch Petrosian across right kick, sweep away. Left hand would come over the top. was nice. Uh, just the stuff that Petrosian does left hand, right hook. This kind of thing, just difficult to touch. His evasion was really good. Like he had a lot of like pullback counters, the stuff that we've come to expect from him. But very smooth. Like a couple of really narrow lean backs as well. Like he'd lean back off a high kick, but it was almost like a shoulder roll. Like he'd sit way close, so he didn't make too much space off it. Like not like a straight back lean back. He would really slide out of the way and still be right in front of Pechmorica, which looked to be giving Pechmorica trouble. And was also had this really nice being in the opposite stances, kind of like kind of like slip out with this really loaded jab against um the right hand from Peshmoka, which was pretty sweet. Like he just stepped like you, you talk about Southpaws all the time trying to get to the outside foot, whereas Peshmer- um Petrosian has a few tactics that actually involve stepping deep to the inside, mm. which is like he would slip um Peshmoka's right hand and just simultaneously on that slip step all his weight down and kind of just 
throw a loaded jab through the middle, which gave Peshmerga a little bit of trouble, mm. which I like. But then round two, Peshmerga, like we talked about when I was ranting, made like <laughs> a really nice tactical decision to take. Like Petrosian likes these real sideways lean outs. Mm. So what um, Peshmerga would do is he would kind of like pour out with his hands to try to get that pullback encounter. But what he'd do is he'd do kind of like almost like a sticky hand punch. Mm. He'd throw his punch like like um, the hook was really good. He'd throw it out. Not really with intent to land it as a punch, but he would just sit it down over the, over the back of Giorgio's neck. So as Giorgio sort of leans out, Peshmerga's just rather than think he's like throwing a hook, but just dropping all his weight down and holding on with it at the end. Mm. Link up, drive a couple of knees, and you could see like even from kind of the first time um, he did it in this fight, like Petrosian was uncomfortable with knees coming in multiples, mm. and then he would just knee until the referee told him to break break and then he'd kind of get back to more of the same so what this was was like Giorgio is trying to play at this long boxing range you can just see Peshmerga's pretty content it's ugly especially by kickboxing standards but he's just walking um, Petrosian down and just as Petrosian tries to use his footwork which is really signature it's this kind of hopping to the side um, Peshmerga would just follow him and just frame with his hand and just bear down on him hold him for a second knee knee disengage also some really nice by Peshmerga like some really good plays for kickboxing clinching here is just short burst, knee knee, disengage and reengage, which is obviously very important for kickboxing when you only have um, limited um, time to clinch. You've got to be able to exit and, and re enter, which it seemed like referee Asushi Onari was kind of noticing. So, not coming in to break them because they would break and re engage. So that kind of resets your three seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so just like Pesmorokot just. To me, um, made an adjustment that Petrosian wasn't really ready for, like that he hadn't kind of planned to adapt for. Because I mean, you could see Petrosian coming up really tall <coughs> and trying to just set his feet and get these, um, get his the, the same combinations going. But Petrosian, as he got a roll on, was able to kind of just walk through. Like it was like he either went to the outside of Petrosian's arms to get over to the top of him. Or just fired straight through the, through the middle and sat behind his shoulder so there was no room for Petrosian to punch. And as soon as the, the clinch would break up, it was just that that kind of contest of like drowning him. Like Petrosian would, okay, this is my time and try to fire back and just be met with more of the same. Yeah. Like some really nice entries to watch here. Um, and yeah, like Petrosian, especially in third round, just doubled down on it. He just threw punches with no real intent for damage and just like stuck to him. And Petrosian just wasn't really ready for him. Like he'd dress the punches and slip out, but he's not ready for just. Like he slips out, thinks he's dealt with the power of the the power of the punch. He's just not ready for the arm to just stay and all the weight of Peshmerga to come down on top of him. So yeah, just very interesting and smart fight by Peshmerga. I thought. Hmm. Yeah, it was surprising like, um, for sure. Surprising, smart. very surprising. And it's like you know, Peshmerga ended up uh, getting a split decision win in the end. Petrosian. Uh, yeah, yeah Petrosian. Yeah, yeah, yep. From there. And, um, but now we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> who knows what will happen here. Yeah, I guess we'll find out over the coming weeks what the final decision would be off that one. Okay. But, like, you know, um, the semifinals, how they set up so far from the other three fights is awesome. Like, you know, it's like like a lot of unexpected, like, you know, people winning from there. And it's really opened it up. And it's like, it, it's basically made it even more exciting. Yeah, I think, was. like, really, that's the point of a tournament. Like, this was sick. Like, everyone liked it. If you, like, Google any of the guys, like, there's major combat sports sources talking about kickboxing, which is awesome. That's, like, this is what happens when big names lose. Like, it generates more buzz. And, like, I think there will be greater people returning to watch um, 
greater numbers of people returning to watch the sem- the semifinals than they were in the quarterfinals. Like, you're not suffering from not having your golden boys, I don't think. Yeah. And especially because you just do the tournament thing. Like, now you have both Yotsen Clark and Georgia Petrosian kind of waiting in the wings to to match with the winner, which is always a fun thing to do. Just like, yeah, you can just... You're setting yourself up for a lot of fun fights in the future if you just let this tournament roll on. Yeah, definitely. Cool. So let's just like talk about just to the end there. So like probably won't have time to talk about Nikki Holtzkin and Regan Erskill from there. Um, but we'll just talk about like the, the fight that they went two rounds from there, the main event for this um, for this one, which is Shinya Yoki trying to defend the lightweight strap for uh, MMA, uh, MMA world strap against Christian Lee from Singapore. Um yeah, and it was like it's it's an it was an interesting fight because like you're talking about like two guys who are like the just absolute strong starters in yeah. this match. Like you know, she like you know I think it was, I was listening to I think it was Jack Slack. You know, I think like you know wins most of his fight in the first round because like just like must be just a surprisingly just ultra strong dude. Yeah, just mm. muscles people around, and Chris is at least the same. Like you know, just. Just an absolutely like fucking spark plug of, of, of a fighter. Um, you watched this one, Trent? Yeah, yeah. I did. Yeah, because like there's a lot of interesting grappling exchanges in this one as well. Yeah, that's right. Like, we, I think we predicted that there would be a lot of grappling in it, mm-hmm. but like I think he likes it, likes to get them up on the fence and work from there. Um, and he would, I think he did like a, a double leg trip, kind of outside leg trip as well, and he was using that to um, to get to the mount. And he transit, he transitioned from the mount into the armbar, and he had a tight. Armbar. Um, it was more like a, it was more your traditional kind of armbar, and I, I thought Lee was gonna. I don't know how it snapped. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> he would be feeling that still. He would have popped a few times. Yeah, he definitely would have popped it. But um, he kept because because Ioki kept that sort of more traditional um, armbar with his his leg across the torso. I, I noticed a lot of guys do the uh, that sort of three quarter armbar, so they'll move the. Um, They'll, they'll keep the, the leg over the head to keep it under control, but they'll move their leg from the torso to above the shoulder um, so they can't sort of turn around and do that sort of running escape and turn the arm, sort of hitchhiker their arm out of the, out of the, uh, out of the submission, but, which is kind of what he sort of thought. He's, he just fought his way out of it like that. Um, so maybe if he just sort of, if I, he just sort of switched it up a little bit with his leg control, he probably would have finished it, but it was tight. Um, yeah, so good luck to his arm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like a like a, from that kind of situation, there he's like he he turned it around, didn't he? From that, yeah. <clears throat> um, I didn't really watch the sequence, so like, well, I didn't. I actually didn't really watch the fight from there. I, I saw like the arm bar, and I saw the finish from that one. How did the finish come about? So he he got. He got another. Uh, I can't remember the exact sequence, but I know he got he got the takedown, and he went to mount. But like, I think he had a really solid mount on top of Lee, and I don't know why he transitioned to go for the armbar again, and he just he escaped it straight away that time, and then they they got to the feet, and that was it. He he started throwing, um, and got the um got the knockout. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it was I don't know. Might dis- people might disagree, but I think it was a tactical error by Aki trying to transition back to an armbar, which Lee had just escaped from an even tighter one. Mm. Um, he just gave up really good positional control on top. He probably just should have done the old ground and pound and rained elbows on top. But um, yeah, anyway, that's the way it, that's the way it went. Well, happy lesson, right? Yeah. Uh, okay, cool. So let's take a quick break and then we'll head back to our last segment of the day. All right. 
This is the Enter the Double Dragon Podcast. Let's be here like you don't need me back. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Welcome back to the last uh, portion. That's like a new segment as well. So talking about like, you know, just like, just like, um, Helping give guidance to people, like you know, like in strength and conditioning to uh, combat sports, because th- there isn't a whole heap on it, because like, like it is this fairly new niche in the industry, combat sports and strength and conditioning from there. Because like you look at some of the old school, like some fighters, like you know, all like training rooms, like especially like like it's gonna be like mostly Muay Thai, and that, like you know, really a lot of it's, you gotta do your runs, you know, you go so like you gotta hit the bag, and that one uh, probably still a lot of. Um, like old school gyms don't believe in weight training either because it makes you too slow or puts, you, puts too much mass on you. And and really a lot of times it's about like how you train as well. And uh, that's what I find like nowadays for me, like you know, I spend a lot of time doing a lot of strength and conditioning from there, like competing in powerlifting, I competed in strongman, um, also competed in fighting as well. And like I, I always found that like I could never kind of get to the, like, you know, to the, the real like next level in strength because – I always came back to martial arts and I could never give it up fully. So like that, that always hindered my, like, you know, maximal strength games. Cause like, you know, I'm trying to pull the system in too many ways from there. But what is good now is like, cause I've done both and I know like got a good idea of the energy system to that is like how it benefits my fighters and hopefully it can benefit you too. So a lot of questions, like, you know, a lot, like a, Low the frequently asked questions is the one I like to address. If anyone does have any specific questions and like the uh, training, please send them through and like, yep, yeah, we'll answer them on the podcast, okay? Because we'll make this like part of our weekly one. All right. So from there, like uh, one that I still that I get a mainly thing is like you know like what's what's the other cardio I can do. So look, when you're doing saying things about cardio, like you know you should be still doing your sport practice. Like you know, hitting your tie pads, doing your rolling rounds, your jujitsu, and whatever. That's just, that's part of your cardio. But like, how do you like you know f- like do the general cardio? Because it does help. Like you know, I wouldn't give out stuff that doesn't help. Like, what's the point of doing that? It's like you know, fighters do enough already. So really, say so, like you know, a lot of guys like, should I do long runs? Should I do intervals? Like, what's the best from there? Both, really. Yeah. You got to do both of them. But like when you first start off, so let's just say like you know if we're in a fight camp and they're all we're outside of fight camp. So I, I usually don't say like a fight camp's like eight to six weeks out. If, if you're lucky, <laughs> if you get that nice one, like amateurs, like you don't even get that. No fight camp for amateurs. That one. Yeah. But like, you know, where should you start? So like, like, um, think of it like peaking for like for max, for best performance is like a pyramid. So you always have to have a base. So the base usually starts off in, um, just aerobic. So like long steady state cardio from there. So, with our long state steady cardio from there, like it's a glycogen based um, uh, energy system. So basically, you know, you have to use oxygen, but also like um, if you're saying fuel sources, like basically glycogen or sugars is your fuel source. So if you're a fighter that does keto, you're a fucking idiot. Um, it's like <laughs> it's like you know, it's it's uh, fighting is a mixed dominant sport. You know, but like there is like you know, you have to do aerobic stuff, and like you know, when you're doing keto for fighting, I just don't understand it. It just doesn't make sense. Because it just doesn't like you know the fuel the fuel source for fat doesn't really transfer over. It does, but it takes a really long time. It's like if you're doing an ultra marathon, yeah, you need fats. Yeah, <laughs> you need that one. But like for the stuff that we do, carbs is usually the fuel source you want to do. All right, but like um, so what is like you know aerobic? What classify anything over sixty seconds? 
like so that could be over 60 seconds to like hours of work so even when i've got like guys like doing technical sessions like doing two hours technical sessions from there like you know like use cups you know use your sports drinks and things like that that really helps you like you know maintain like you know performance and recovery um so how to train it though so if you're just starting off like it's pretty simple like you want to like keep your heart rate up for about 30 45 minutes that's good like you can go an hour but like you know it depends like you know how beat up you get from training also so like you know from that 30 to 45 minutes from there you want to keep your heart rate between 130 to 150 uh, beats per minute i usually do heart rate because knowing fighters they will fucking run themselves into the ground or like they'll they'll, they'll just do do it too hard yep. if you don't <laughs> yeah, yeah i have to educate you a lot <laughs> a lot of this stuff it's on going. <laughs> he'll just keep running he's actually a very good runner so like um so like also as well like if you if you like if you don't have a heart rate monitor you can't afford one like you'll find like some pretty good ones that are cheap but like you know if you can't afford one like another way of saying is like you should be able to hold a conversation while you do this cardio like you know, it shouldn't be like all right and uh, like you know you should be able to hold like a steady conversation enough anyway to do it that's a good gauge because it, it shouldn't be hard like you know you're working but it shouldn't be absolutely taxing because like this is also like for this type of cardio, I, sh- I use it as a recovery method also. Yeah. Okay. But when you're first starting off, like two to three times a week, do steady state cardio, like to, just to build a base. It allows you just basically to do more, um, better training sessions because you look, you just got the gas to actually do like, like an hour training session then after that. Um, best ways to do it from there. Like, you know, a, a lot of people like, you know, should do runs like depends. Like, I'm just gauge that a lot of people, like about 90% of people don't know how to actually run properly Yeah. from there. So like, you know, it is a skill and like, you know, it's like, oh, I just get sore from it. It's like, yeah, you're probably not running properly. But sometimes we're like, I don't fucking run. I don't like to run mm-hmm. <laughs> from there. But like, I'll do the air bike, I'll do rower, like, fuck, I'll even hit the bag. Like from that one, just like, you know, just like that pace or even shadow box from there. You can still use that sports specific stuff to... Like, you know, get the goal in the end. Like, just don't think, like, long steady state is just running. It's just you got to keep your heart rate up for a certain time period. That's all you have to focus on yeah. from there. Uh, so going into that now, so going into interval work from there, like, interval work can be done in many different ways because, like, um, like, the general energy systems is aerobic and then you go into a lactic, um, lactic acid from there which is like around about 30 to 40 seconds or it can go into a minute i think yeah so it's like you know that little bit in between which is lactatus is main energy source and then you go into like you know more a lactic or as most people know it as anaerobic training so that's uses atp as its fuel source so that's anywhere from zero to 10 seconds so you think like you know uh really explosive motherfuckers from there you think you're, you're your romero's you're like hector lombards they're very like um you know a lactic or fast twitch dominant from there but it doesn't mean they can't have a good gas tank as well like you know different fighters you'll find will have different um like you know different uh athletic qualities that you kind of use this cardio for so like you know once you build a base from there i'll back off on the cardio bit so like you know instead of like doing three to two times maybe one to two times there so we're looking now going into about mm, yeah going into fight camp now like you know eight to even five weeks in from there or five weeks out sorry um and i like to use more so like you know with a train from there like the a lactic system so i try to do it in two parts so i use um capacity first 
So capacity is just more so building the endurance, uh, well, building for that um, anaerobic endurance. So that's usually will I try and do like 15 seconds, 15 to 10 seconds from there. Um, so like the best way I like to train that is in like an, a repeated sprint. So like that's not actually sprint, but all, like, I think the better way is probably repeated effort. So like I could I, I with all my fights like I might use med ball slams, I might use jumping, I might use battle ropes, I might use slow slow power. You can use sprinting if you want, but like same thing. Some some especially fighters are just too fucking banged up to actually have proper sprinting mechanics. But I do like jumps and med, medicine ball throws the best. So like you know for fifteen seconds there, get them to do it like about probably about 80 percent. You can't. Some things you go full out. It depends on the exercise. But yeah, fifteen seconds they do do the exercise for, and then I spend about a one to four ratio. So like fifteen seconds of work to about maybe a minute of like you know active recovery. So that could be like uh, core work, or that could be just shadow boxing. But they should be using that active recovery as like you know same thing, not going hard again. They should be trying to drive their heart rate down from there and like you know getting ready to do the next sprint again so how how many times would i do that for so generally i'll probably do this method for like you know five times one exercise so we usually do like say like a med ball slam for 15 seconds to about maybe 60 seconds of shadow boxing for this one then straight from once i've done five sets again to go straight into for like 15 seconds of some sort of jump not a maximal jump, but like, you know, like, you know, be just like, you know, hopping over like a, like a, a hurdle or like, you know, <clears throat> or like, you know, just doing like shorter broad jumps, not maximal broad jumps. And then same thing, go into, 30, uh, into uh, once you've done 15 seconds of those uh, jumps into 60 seconds of shadow boxing, or you could do core work. You could do a fucking plank if you really wanted to from there. Like, um, um, I'm really big on like doing a lot of the the core work, like you know, just get that core endurance because like you know, in fighting in general, it doesn't mean it's like you know, jujitsu, muay thai, boxing. You gotta use your core heaps, yeah. and you want it conditioned to actually work for like you know, fight rounds. So and like I just did that. So five sets of that, the something upper body, five sets of lower body, and then basically that's that that session done. Like sessions don't have to be an hour long. They don't even have to be half an hour long. Like when you're just doing like just this work, this because you gotta think this work is supplementary to a lot of your other training. You're already doing a lot of the longer training in the gym. This is like a lot of the stuff. This is like the cherry on the pie kind of stuff. Yeah. Like if if you it's like if you've got the time to do it, do it. If you don't, then like focus the time on doing like the the other stuff, uh, like doing all the technical training from there. And like you try and maybe maybe add it at the end of the session. You might do a couple like these kind of like steady state ones um, at the end. Yeah, you can do it with pad work as well. Yeah, kicks on the pad, that's fine. Also, punches on the on the heavy bag. Okay, like I said, like the, like don't make it complicated, and you have to do certain exercises. You can make this fit any way you do. If you just keep within the time constraints. Yeah. So once you're done, like you know, like I try to do that maybe in the three week block or two week block, depends on how far away from the fight. And then the last phase, I'll go into um, a lactic power, which is like yeah, I generally do eight seconds for our guys because I think. Um, I learned this off um, guy in Melbourne that uh, is a strength conditioning coach for uh, Absolute MMA in Collingwood. I think Dan Dan Howard. Follow him on Instagram. He's got some really good information uh, on like you know sports conditioning uh, for combat sports. Um, eight seconds is a general time for clinch. 
from there. Can be longer, depending on the length thing, but it can be a lot shorter. But like eight seconds is a good average time. Then you're gonna find like spinning clinch from that one. So I do that a lot for the Muay Thai fighters, and I just use the same exercises again. Like you know, you can vary it up as much as you want to, like so you don't make training stale from there. But I use I I kind of still use those similar ratios, like you know, one yeah you know like one to four or even one to five in this like instance. So like I'll do eight seconds on of the uh, the explosive exercise, and this is going a hundred percent now like from there, to about 40 seconds of like an active recovery exercise, be it shadow boxing or be it core work, that one. And I think that works pretty good. Um, so like, you know, if I'm just doing it for a fight camp from there, so like, you know, to start the fight camp, you know, the ratio, like, you know, I leans towards more doing steady state to interval work. You can still do interval work if you really want to. It's fine if you've got the time. And then I just try and chop it up a little bit more half and half to like, as the fight camp goes along, getting closer to the fights from there. And, like, you know, then a lot of stuff, then the steady state stuff, depending, like, you got to gauge on the fighter if, like, how beat up they are. They, their steady stuff, state stuff might be replaced by more, like, pad rounds or more bag rounds. And you can do the same thing with intervals. You can, like, you know, you can start the, the start of the camp really um, general, like, with, like, you know, just med ball slams and things like that. And then towards the end of the camp, you can replace it just solely with pad work and but use the same methods again. Um, I find like like that's good if you've got a fight camp, but generally you don't have you don't have that luxury of doing like long fight camps either. Yeah. So someone like say of like you know I got Luke Thompson the T Bone from there like you know taking like amateur like you know amateur boxing you might fight like every three weeks. Yeah. From there, so I, I use like more of a concurrent system. So that means like I'm training all these aspects within one week. So like you know generally like you know in our gym here we have two conditioning sessions here. I try and break them up like every into two, three week blocks where you're doing like we're doing a lactic capacity or a lactic power, which just keep switching back and forth. And then I give him his own codec program from there, which is like it require like it has like maybe a threshold one, which is the lactic one, okay, or it has um, a long steady state one. So I, I still try and periodize it and try and switch them back and forth because sometimes like doing all of, all of it in one week plus the strength work. Plus the technique work is just way too taxing, and generally people have jobs. <laughs> I like Hugh and Luke; they don't. <laughs> they just make we only time work that. when we feel like it. <laughs> <laughs> They're living the full athlete life. So, like you know, so hopefully that helps people out. I know, like a lot of it, like it's maybe a bit something. I try not to go heaps in the science because, like, I'm never one to go like fully deep into the science either. Because, like, fuck, I just don't like reading. <laughs> <laughs> but like you know like I'll listen to lectures and I'll like you know apply stuff and things like that but like generally from there like you know a lot of people go like what's better like you know if you're going to choose one if you're just starting right off go with a steady state and then try and transition to doing the interval work and like I was saying with the interval work as well like um, do it like in that kind of fashion like it should be taxing but you shouldn't be fucking like you know throwing up or like, you know, leaving the gym ultra dead and I go, oh, I can't do my technical session now because I'm too beat up. Yeah. It's like, it's supplementary. It's, it's like, you know, if you've built the base already from the long steady state work, you should be ready to do the interval work from there. So hopefully that helps. But if you want any clarification, like, you know, feel free to like to message me, like, you know, on Facebook or through the Double Dragon uh, page or through the Enter the Double Dragon page also from there. I'm more than happy to answer questions on that. Um, and that will take us to the end of our thing tonight. So hopefully, like you like the segment a little bit better. Uh, check in on like 
on the podcast, uh, on the like, you know, on iTunes and like, you know, even on Buzzsprout if you listen on the desktop. And I'll have the, um, I'll also make uh, timestamps from there, so you can skip the parts you don't want to listen to. I guess <laughs> that's fair. There's a lot of content to come up, but so you know, remember follow us on iTunes, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, Google Play, all other podcast uh, platforms, or also on Twitter. I'm active there now again for that one uh, <laughs> at double underscore enter. Or, you know, search for Enter the Double Dragon Podcast. Also, follow us on Instagram at uh, Enter the Double Dragon. So, uh, thanks for listening to us again. All right? And we'll see you next time. There you go. Peace. Peace.